This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff you're here to talk about in this episode include... Bubble Gumshoe. Playing historical figures. And my New England book raid. the part where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats. This, of course, is the segment in which the covert self-promotion of the rest of the podcast becomes the overt self-promotion of one of us talking about a new project. In this case, it's a project that Ken worked on and I'm very excited about because it is the first gumshoe core game produced by a publisher other than Pelgrane, in this case, Evil Hat Productions. Although Gumshoe is now available in an open license, I think this uh, project uh, started even before that. And uh, it's also the first game that actually has the word Gumshoe in the title of the game, because we're talking <laughs> about Bubble Gumshoe. So, Ken, why don't you start with the elevator pitch on Bubble Gumshoe? Okay, the elevator pitch on Bubble Gumshoe is that it is the teen detective role-playing game. Uh the goal being to cover the territory between Nancy Drew and Veronica Mars via uh, the Hardy Boys, Brick, John Belairs, uh, the Free Investigators, Encyclopedia Brown, Scooby-Doo, anything where teens investigate, that is where Bubblegum Shoe is, although it's sort of its core identity is in that uh, Nancy Drew to Veronica Mars, high schoolers getting into trouble and getting other people out of trouble. So the, the core activity could be summed up as... 
high school investigators solve mysteries. Exactly. So uh, let's look at the Division of Labor, because this was uh, created by a real dream team. We have uh, Emily Carabas, Lisa Steele, and yourself. So who did what? Okay. I think most people uh, listening to this podcast know what I do. Uh, what I did was I sort of created the gumshoe framework that would support the 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 stories and support the rest of the rules came up with we need something here that is really really brilliant uh here's what we need to do with the with the town sort of just establish the whole pattern of the book and then wrote up the basics of the relationship rules which are the new kinds of of abilities that we have in gumshoe or in bubble gumshoe the uh, relationship abilities and then turned relationships and social combat over to Emily Kerboss, who of course is a magnificent uh, A plus game designer uh, who has specialized previously in tabletop role playing in games about romance, and so having her sort of give that honed relationship role playing eye a, um, a chance to run over the gumshoe mechanics and try and build uh, some Emily Care bossness into it. Uh, she did that, and Lisa Steele, who has written GURPS Mysteries, was sort of our keeping everything sort of grounded, saying, you know, what's uh, an actual mystery procedure going to look like in a in a small town? What are the cops going to do? How do we keep them out of it, basically? Because you don't want to drag cops in. You want to have the adventures sort of just play out with the kids. Because right, you, you want the player characters to have agency as always. So that's a... Exactly. Uh, uh, that's always... An issue in role playing is why aren't the cops investigating this? But mm -hmm. of course, it becomes even more so when the main characters are uh, teenagers, right? And uh, so Lisa sort of handles the mystery. She helped build the town out with uh, Emily to establish fertile ground for for mystery role playing. We have a sample town in the game called Drewsbury, named of course after Nancy Drew. And so you can just sort of take it and get going, or you can build the town out mystery by mystery, or you can build the town ahead of time. There's sort of three ways you can you can build your your background town, and then your characters obviously are built as standard Gumshoe characters. Only as I say, they have relationship abilities which are the other sort of abilities. So our abilities shake out as investigative, interpersonal, relationship, and general. And general are the same kind of ones that all gumshoe abilities have, uh, with the addition of the throwdown general ability, which is the social combat general ability. Investigative are the standard sort of uh, find-a-clue type ones. Uh, relationships, I've discussed already, but they're with specific people. So you could have a relationship a pool with your mom or with the... Uh, with the vice principal or with the chemistry teacher or with another friend. And you use those pools to get them to do things for you or to use or to sort of piggyback off their abilities. So you might not have a gun, but your mom has a gun if she's a cop. So you can borrow the gun if you need to bring a gun. Of course, that spends down your relationship with your mom because she finds out what are you doing taking the gun out of the house, you crazy child. And then trouble ensues. And then the interpersonal build points, which are the standard interpersonal abilities, but because they can be spent into throwdowns to uh, give flavor and power to throwdowns, they get special attention because, again, interpersonal ability is kind of the core of the teen detective genre. Um, so you talked about the town building system and how there are three different ways of doing it. Can you uh, expand a bit on what those three ways are and what the uh, benefits and uh, uh, drawbacks of each would be? Well, the drawback of starting with the town that we've already built for you is it's a town someone else built, so it might not have everything that you want. Um, building locations in the in the town is pretty simple. You just name the location. You provide the threshold, which is the amount of cool you have to spend to, to go into it. Um, that is how we sort of demarcate 
areas that are too grown up for teenagers to go to. They have to work up their cool reserves to be able to to sneak into the uh, mob bar or whatever. And uh, you can you can build out a location pretty simply if you don't like our standard town. If you're building the whole location, the whole town from scratch, then again you might wind up with having overbuilt in one place and underbuilt in another. But again, it's really really simple to to do it because it really is just locations and cool thresholds. And you can abstract that with neighborhoods uh, the way that we do in the book and show you how. So you can have sort of the rich neighborhood. And unless you say something specific, if you're a rich kid, you got no problem going in here. And if you're a poor kid, you have a problem going in here. And that way you can point up the sort of divisions of class that are core to things like Veronica Mars and some of the later uh, teen detective stuff. So what was the, the biggest issue that came up in playtest that needed uh, more attention in, the, in later drafts? Yeah, the playtest, I think the main thing that people needed to sort of get their head around were relationships and how they could be made to work and what you the, you can do with them. The uh, uh, sort of upgunning of interpersonal abilities caused some questions. And so we tried to uh, specifically address, here's how you spend interpersonal points to get an activity versus you don't have to spend to get a core clue and then sort of hammer down the concepts. I, I don't think the concepts superbly changed, but the expression of them had to be made much clearer because it is kind of a step away from standard gumshoe for a lot of people. People who'd never played gumshoe though, they just sort of took it all on board and were generally pretty good with it. There was a couple of sort of misunderstandings, but it was mostly just stuff that I'd written uh, sloppily because I knew what I meant to say. And Emily knew what I meant to say. And neither of us had ever bothered to go back and say, well, let's pretend one of us is not a really great game designer. Then what happens? Yes. Oddly <laughs> enough, writing is for the, uh, for the end user. Weird. Yeah. That's odd. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't hold with that myself, as you know, Robin, but, but anyway, the play testers mostly came back with, with questions about how exactly do relationships work and how can we build those out and, and play with those. And we sort of came back around and around and around. We also had people who came back and said, um, we want more stories about, uh, sort of social issues. And so the team talked to other game designers. We have, uh, Kira McGrand, Shoshana Kasich, James Mendes Hodes, Bree Sheldon, and they all sort of gave us little scenario seeds that focus on one or another sort of question like trans issues or, uh, disabilities or things like that. So that people who wanted to, uh, move it out of the sort of standard, um, white kids in trouble genre were able to sort of look at some other possibilities with that. And then when we added, the drifts at the end, which are the ways to move the setting and and change the rules around, uh, we made sure to, to focus a little bit on some of those uh, questions as well. So, so you're basically putting a little Degrassi in your Veronica Mars. Exactly, just a touch of Degrassi, or even um, uh, there's a there's a number of African American uh, young adult novels that are not explicitly murder mysteries, but they are sort of uh, teen girls finding out what's going on with their friends in school type novels. And that was sort of a whole genre that I didn't even know existed when I started this. Of course, if you, if, if I'd thought for four seconds, I would have realized it existed, but uh, we tried to sort of at least make it possible for readers of those books to recognize stuff in, in bubble gum shoe. So now uh, one thing that we often find when we uh, do a game that is just based in a slightly heightened version in our own reality is that uh, certain of our gamers ha want no truck with reality. They want some uh, nerd genre stuff uh, layered in there. And I take it that's what the drifts are all about. That is exactly what the drifts are all about. The drifts sort of combine, they, they, they sort of combine changing settings and changing rules. And then they're also, they're, they're also in many cases, here's where you nerd trope it. So the first drift that I knew was going in was uh, one that I call Bel Air's Falls, which is a tribute to John Bel Air's the great 
uh, tween YA horror writer. Um, he was not a tween. He wrote for tweens. And uh, anyway, um, he, he wrote, for example, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, The Dark Secret of Weatherend, Figure in the Shadows, Spell of the Sorcerer's Skull, The Money Will in the Crypt, lots and lots of great, uh, young adult horror. And I thought, well, I'm doing young adult. We've already established over and over and over again that, uh, investigative genre is great for horror. I want to do a John Belair's drift. So that's where the sort of uh, using cool as stability comes in. If you're attacked by a monster, here's what you do. Uh, that has the abilities of fleeing and it explains how magic works. If you're not using it, we didn't have room for one that I wanted to do called Druidsburg, which would be a sort of a uh, teen uh, magicians type uh, one. And maybe that'll be something that someone else has to write for bubble gumshoe a little on, but we've got Danvers high, which is for supers. Uh, and that one you'll be glad to know says get a copy of mutant city blues. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You'll, you'll need more. <laughs> you'll need more superheroes rules than none, but it, but it sort of sets that up. And then there's a, uh, sort of a Scooby-Doo, uh, drift, which we call Ruby hollow, uh, which has got rules for a crazy sidekick and for, uh, incredibly soft edge trap making. Right. And do you, uh, refresh all your pools if you split up the party? You know, I don't think that that's in there. So consider that an official, uh, uh, possible drift to our drift is that, uh, splitting the party actually helps you. My final one that I wrote, my final drift was, uh, Veronica base Mars in which you're on a space station on Mars and have that sort of very claustrophobic adventure and you're on Mars. Hey, who doesn't love Mars? And it let me say Veronica and Mars in the same uh, line without being sued. Right. Um, so what do you know now about uh, gumshoe that you didn't know going in? Uh, well, every time I design a gumshoe game, um, <laughs> using the term design as loosely as you wish, I, f- I find out that it can do new things. Uh, we, when we started, we, we, we pretty much knew it could do call of Cthulhu. And so when I designed trail of Cthulhu, I was like, Oh, it can do both Sandy style call and uh indie style call, if you will, Indiana Jones style call. And then when we, I did Nice Black Agents, it was like, oh, and it could also do thrillers. And then this very much was, it can do not quite drama system games, but it can do games that are really about interpersonal drama and really not at all about uh, fighting people. I think our, our fighting rules are maybe a page or two pages long and our social combat, our throwdown rules are a whole chapter. So it's, it really sort of nicely can, uh, spin on a dime. And I think that these relationship uh, abilities specifically can really be built out in a lot of new gumshoe ways that we can start using those as, as a, as a stealable technology. So if you were to uh, be uh, flown out to a convention to run a one shot, uh, would you run the default setting or would you uh, feel the need to use one of the drifts because you'd like to get your fingers on that one? I would probably, it would depend on the convention, frankly. I would probably either do a Bellars Falls drift because those are so nicely encapsulated. Um, the trouble with Bellars Falls is those would really build up over multiple sessions. Um, I might just run a standard, you know, uh, Drewsbury setting where your kids at Truman High and something's going on and you get to look into it. And again, because it's a one shot, it would probably not just be, you know, someone has been putting uh, mean stuff on your Facebook page. It would probably be something worse than that. Right. Like the uh, whatever the uh, big arc of any Veronica Mars season is, you could sort of do that as the convention one shot because you want more more drama in the mix for that. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think we've uh, whetted everyone's appetite for Bubble Gumshoe. It is now available. It got released at origins it exists as a, a physical product i've seen photographs of it that people have been uh, lovingly holding and so uh 
I guess next up on the really exciting set of other publishers doing Gumshoe is that uh, uh, Atlas Games, uh, through uh, the design work of Cam Banks, are working on an Ars Magica uh, Gumshoe, which is uh, also very exciting, and they've got that in uh, sort of playable uh, form. So they've uh, they're playing. Yeah, they play tested that at uh, Origins with Cat and Simon. So they were they came back all excited and thrilled. Super. Uh, well, uh, we'll have to talk about that uh, in a future segment once it is out. But uh, I think we've covered our overt self promotion, and now can uh, move through this commercial back to covert self promotion. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check. And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the gaming hut. But here at the gaming hut, one of those miniatures is also a tiny Peter Frampton, and another one is a tiny Alexander the Great, and a tiny Eliz Queen Elizabeth I. It's playing with famous folks because Sean McAuliffe, beloved Patreon backer, asks us, do you have any tips for playing historical figures. How would I, Sean, make Julius Caesar, Abraham Lincoln, or Marie Curie memorable characters? And Robin, I'm pretty sure that Abraham Lincoln and Julius Caesar are both pretty memorable. I think Marie Curie might have to glow in the dark <laughs> because she seemed to be a relatively well-behaved person who just stayed in the lab and invented things. Well, in, in, in our reality, as, as we've been allowed to know it, sure. We, don't, yes, we haven't well, read yeah. the secret files Obviously of Marie Curie. Obviously, she fought radium ghosts. Yeah. Yes, we know that. You know that. I know that. Sean McAuliffe knows that. I think what he wants to know is how do we 
explain that in the course of a role-playing game without having uh, Julius Caesar, Abraham Lincoln, and Marie Curie take over the whole game and reduce the players to watching a slightly better Elminster go through the actual adventure for them. Robin, what's your advice on famous people in a game? Well, question number one is, does playing mean as the GM or as a player? And I think the more obvious context for that, the thing where it more often happens, is that you are playing a supporting character, Abraham Lincoln or Murray Curie, that people come to in order to get information or resources. And so in that case, I think you basically kind of want to figure out what the archetypal mythic version of that character is, do that, and get off stage without taking uh, player agency away. And so uh, just as in Bubble Gumshoe, you don't want the cops coming and taking over the case. You don't want Abraham Lincoln to then, you know, order the army to go and investigate the monsters under the falls or to have Marie Curie say, you guys just wait here and I will use my radium powers. You want to have sort of an, a memorable interaction that says something iconic about that character and everybody can feel, oh, wow, we got to meet Julius Caesar. That was great. And then move on with the rest of the adventure. And possibly what you want to do is tie in the adventure to something that works into a historical fact or conflict that that uh, character was involved with so that they don't seem like just kind of a gratuitous walk-on, but there is a reason why that character is crucial to this particular scenario. And uh, is that how you would do it? Yeah, I mean, you you want the character to sort of have their show-off moment, but not take it over. Another possible uh, piece of advice that I have is don't run, uh, don't run into Julius Caesar and Abraham Lincoln and Marie Curie right off the bat. Run into Crassus and uh, uh, William Seward and Pierre Curie, and and those guys. It, it's a little more human, and so player characters feel. Uh, that like their character is not being shoved off the stage because William Seward is sort of standard NPC sized. He's powerful. He's sneaky. He's a weasel, but he's not Abraham fricking Lincoln, right? You're not saying, Oh, if we touch him wrong, we, we, we leave slavery al- around. Uh, and similarly, Crassus is like, Oh, he's got weaknesses. We know he's a big fat greedy jerk and we can, we can play on him. Whereas if they're like, we're going to outthink Julius Caesar, they immediately throw up their hands and say, well, that's never going to happen. So I like having sort of your B list historical characters as, as uh, the the people who are really involved in the story. And then if that gets you to the A-list historical character, by then they've worked themselves into a position where they've, they're comfortable in the historicalness of the story. And when they meet Wyatt Earp, it doesn't immediately become either a panic or a throwdown. And they're like, okay, I, I respect Wyatt Earp's role in, in Tombstone. We're going to approach him as a powerful faction leader, but not necessarily as uh, an, an all killing God or as a guy we have to kill in order to make our name here in, in the setting. A completely opposite thing to do than my first recommendation would be <laughs> to create uh, an opportunity for the players to kind of witness or even facilitate the historic figures transformation into who they truly become. So you sort of meet, you meet young Abe Lincoln and you take part in sort of the first pivotal event that you can find as you do your research that sense that person on their path uh, into history. And so uh, that entails a bit, a little bit more research that allows you to play a not quite fully formed version of the character so that you don't feel that you, you know, have to, 
fully do an Abe Lincoln, and uh, it also allows you to uh, have a transformation, a change that your story brings about so that the uh, the player characters retain their agency, but they feel that their agency was used in making Edgar Allan Poe decide to turn to horror writing or or convincing Victoria Woodhull to uh, switch from uh, just being a spiritualist and make her an early feminist icon or, or what have you. Yeah, you can uh, you can do that that early, and you can also, of course, uh, the other version of that is you meet them in their in their late era when everyone has sort of forgotten how great they were. So you can run into uh, not necessarily Julius Caesar because he gets killed too early. Same yeah, uh, Lincoln. Lincoln's also out. Lincoln also out, but th- there is plenty of of years left in Marie Curie's life after she discovers radium when she's just uh, slowly dying of cancer, and maybe you can save her life. Maybe you can engage in some sort of adventure that will fix the end of Marie Curie's life and make it better, but you don't worry that you've thrown off the course of her previous life. Uh, and again, the, that sort of last, the, the, that last hurrah, last ride of the old uh, cowboy type uh, concept, it, it's a really great one to play. It's got a natural story arc to it. And again, because the character is is in their dotage that maybe their great powers are have, have diminished you're, you're not quite you know if you meet Wyatt Earp in Nome Alaska in 1915 he's not the same Wyatt Earp that was tearing up the the sagebrush and you can maybe say okay it's good to have Wyatt Earp along to hunt wendigos and but Wyatt Earp is not just going to be able to you know beat them up with a with the barrel of his peacemaker you really have to work with Wyatt Earp and you're all buddies and you just know that at one point Something's going to get shot and that may kill Wyatt Earp to do it. But he's, but you have him sort of as a magic item almost rather than as a, uh, an Elminster who comes along and solves all your problems and shoots all your Wendigos for you. Now, at the risk of opening a new can of scallop potatoes at near the end of the segment, there is also the question of how you play a historical figure as a player character. And that's something that we might get to wrestle with in one of the possible future things that we've, uh, are trying to convince Talk Simon to let us do. And so I guess the trick there is to uh, kind of assign a uh, a second dimension to that character, uh, almost like a drama system set of dramatic poles that make them, because you can't just play a one-dimensional version of, you know, Abe Lincoln, who is always wise. You have to find another side. And in uh, Lincoln's case, of course, you would find that the dark self-doubt and the difficult uh, family life and you would have that other dimension to play with. I don't know what you would do with uh, Julius Caesar or Marie Curie, but that would be your exercise as a player in order to find, you know, two different sides of that character uh, to play so that it's not just a a cartoon kind of uh, historical super friends situation. And one of the things that you can do with playing the characters is generally, if you've got Julius Caesar, Abraham Lincoln and Marie Curie teaming up, You've left real history behind and you can then use them as your own character without worrying about breaking them historically. It's like, well, my Abraham Lincoln, as a matter of fact, can do spirit magic because his great depression lets him see ghosts, just like historical Abraham Lincoln saw ghosts. So it's like we've got Abraham Lincoln and he can see ghosts and that's his power in this setting. Plus, of course, he can chop things with his axe. So you've got. Uh, the sort of license to use them if you, if they're playing like Time Rangers or the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or something like that, where you've pulled them out of their normal time and space and set them uh, loose uh, against another planet or against another timeline or, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, there was a game in which we were all supposed to be h- historical figures or 
people from the past and I played the Compte de Saint-Germain as a character. And it turns out he's a really successful player character because no one knows what he did. I, I too had a <laughs> so, long running campaign where one of the players uh, played uh, Saint-Germain in, in Over the Edge, actually. Yeah, right. And so uh, GURPS uh, has two books, Who's Who, uh, one and two, which give you GURPS stats for uh, together 200 some characters or, or maybe it's 100 characters. And uh, that will give get you started, certainly, on analyzing uh player character uh great his- great historical figures and also of course npc great historical figures and uh, i guess on a, on a final note uh who's the historical figure that the uh characters in your uh, wreck of the old 97 campaign are uh, most likely to meet next well they have met wyatt earp and they are currently trying to keep uh, a very young robert chambers and charles dana gibson from being killed by a mysterious spectral figure that escaped when the hellgate got blown open um, the Carl Brown, who is a androgynous, uh, leader of the Coxies army, which is another decade in the future. Um, they are almost certainly going to run. They've run into Buffalo Bill already. Uh, I suspect that it will be very difficult for me to avoid having them run into, uh, Hearst at some point as he moves into the West and starts digging things up. I think that he will make an excellent, uh, player character for them or an excellent opponent for them. They've already sort of met. Uh, a couple of other uh, great uh, rail barons, but I think a mining baron might make a good change as well. And uh, how proactive are your players about seeking out their own ways to interact with these figures, or do you sort of have to come up with a story hook to bring them into the story and make them interactive? Generally, the first time the character enters, the player's are, wait for me to say what's going to happen. So uh, they knew that Tombstone was coming, and they did everything in their power to avoid crossing paths with white Earp because they knew that once that happened, they'd have to either throw down or, or, or be on his side. There was no two ways about it. So they worked very, very hard to avoid white Earp. Uh, but with other settings, um, like, uh, Robert W. Chambers, he was introduced as a guy named Bob. And they only later on figured out that he was Robert W. Young Robert W. Chambers. And of course the player characters have no idea that he means anything, but the players, uh, know something. Right. But now that I've introduced Leland Stanford, they will go back and pester Leland Stanford on purpose because they know he exists in the world or Edward Mewbridge, the guy who invented the camera, uh, the motion picture camera. He's a, a, a player in the world not a player player. You know what I mean? He's a, a big wheel in the world. So they know they can go pester Edward Muirbridge if they decide they want to. So what sort of favors do they ask uh, him for? Oh, well, Muirbridge um, is very connected with, uh, with images and death. So he can, he, he has uh, doors into the statosphere that they don't have. Um, right now they're sort of a pro- semi-professional rival of Muirbridge. So I think that what they're doing is less likely to ask him for favors and more likely to uh, try and uh, steal his stuff. Uh, L. Frank Baum, however, they're eventually going to want to seek out because I keep throwing Wizard of Oz imagery into the game, uh, avant la lettre. <laughs> and at some point, they're going to go up to the Dakotas and start smashing up newspaper offices, I suspect. Uh, well, I, I'm glad I asked that specific question because that gave us some more techniques, particularly the uh, the late reveal where the uh, you don't necessarily know that the character you're talking to is a big historical figure until somewhat later in the uh, action. And that's a fun uh, layer of irony that I think we would both recommend to everyone. And on that note, it's time to head on out uh, to our next uh, important commercial message and then to our next segment.
in a post-apocalyptic landscape. Only you can protect the survivors. Getting them from the hell of Texas. Through the vicious gauntlet of the chaos gangs. To the safety of California. You are the Freeway Warrior. From Joe Daver's classic game books. Updated, revived, and turbocharged. By the Freeway Warrior Kickstarter from Ask Fagelm. Running now until July 7th. Take your pick of two editions, English or Swedish. Take one part Mad Max. A heaping helping of Wild West. Garnish with some Grapes of Wrath. And you've got Freeway Warrior. Now, kickstarting. Go to Kickstarter and search for... Freeway Warrior. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Brian Thomas. Joshua Hillerup. Brent Brown. Peter Nix. And Sean Krauss. Prove you're smarter than any grown-up investigator by supporting the show at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The distant sound of booksellers across New England chortling in glee indicate that we have once more embarked on that most famous of segments, Ken's Bookshelf, in which we get to vicariously paw through his hoard of books that he's brought back from a uh, set of recent travels, therefore making them even more tax-deductible than they were before. And in this case, you uh, were in New England. Before we get on to the books themselves, are there any booksellers that you would like to plug assuming that you didn't buy all of their books. In all cases, I left them enough seed corn to grow again. That is my way. I went to uh, Seller Stories Books in Providence. Uh, I'd gone there in September, and I got about two-thirds or three-quarters of the books that I got the first time I went there. So I think they take about a year to grow back. So <laughs> if you're if you're asking, um, that is how long your fallow period should be between Seller Stories visits. Uh, I went to Raven Books in Northampton, which I hadn't gone to since 2003, I want to say. And that turned out to be great. That They were lush and overspread. I had to chop them way back. And then there was a bookstore that I'd gone to that had been swallowed up by another bookstore, uh, which is now Gray Matter and Troubadour Books, both of them. And they're a, a bit uh, to the west of, of Northampton, across the bridge, as they say locally, uh, meaning we can't go there. It's across the bridge. It's literally 10 minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> Poor uh, Jim Crocker, who runs Modern Myths in Northampton, will get people who call him and say, where's your store at? And he, he will say, it's in Northampton, right down by, you know, Bridge Street. And they'll say, oh, it's across the bridge then. And <laughs> you idiot. He, he will not say that because he's a lovely retailer, but in his heart, he's, he's calling them idiots. Um, so we went well, across the bridge. The bridge. In fairness, the bridge, there are dangerous trolls who ask yeah. a really yeah, annoying Anglo-Saxon I'm not saying there's riddles. no reason to fear crossing the bridge. Sure, there's trolls and ogres, but... Uh, occasionally a bugbear. But in my case, I was armored by my good intentions. So we got across the bridge just fine. We went to Gray Matter Troubadour, which is a giant, uh, rambledy, uh, like I say, it was two bookstores that grew together. And now it's just a, a veritable labyrinth of books, um, with a, a mysticism shelf that floor to ceiling, about a, a yard and a half, two yards wide books on mysticism, including a whole series of uh, prime primary sources done in some mysticism series. Uh, so I think you wherever. sadly uh, saw that you could not uh, take home everything because that you would cannot. overwhelm you your carrying capacity, if nothing else. But the best, the best part about the mysticism books is when you went around the corner of the shelf, there was another stack of books on the floor about as high as a, as a teenager. 
that had a, a sign taped to it that said more mysticism. So <laughs> if, if you are in the Northampton area and do not fear bridge trolls and are into mysticism, oh my God, is that the store for you to go to? I briefly speculated that I should begin a mysticism collection just because I, I felt the, the, the shelf accusing me, but I didn't do it. Uh, so let's uh, start looking at what you did pick up. What I did get. First on the list here is Sweet Water and Bitter, the ships that stopped the slave trade by Xi'an Rees. Yes, this is the story of the British Navy's preventive squadron that uh, took off station off West Africa in 1808 and patrolled for 50 years to stop slave trade. And not because it was illegal anywhere else, but because Britain had decided it was illegal, so it was illegal for everyone to have. So they would stop, I think, every ship that was not flying a great power flag, and a lot of them that were, if they thought that they were up to slavery, it was a literally thankless task. Um, and they lost about 17,000 men uh, in the course of those 50 years and liberated, according to Xi'an Reese's research, 150,000 slaves, which is a pretty good ratio, I guess, if you're looking for having your, your naval men die, having them die for that is a pretty good cause. And I, when I bought the book, I said to Emily, uh, look, I've found Jason Morningstar's next role-playing game. <laughs> <laughs> because futile, miserable death in a good cause strikes me as a great Jason Morningstar theme. And uh, I believe that's I, the I saw title of the game. <laughs> yes, I, it's it's the subtitle of all the games. It's a series, like the Mysticism series. And uh, when I saw him at Origins, I told him I'd found his his next role playing game, and he did not immediately refute me. So I think that we can count <laughs> count as read that Jason Morningstar will soon be coming out with a Preventive Squadron role playing game. And you're welcome, Jason. Uh, well, that brings us to the Code of Honor, or Rules for the Government of Principles or and Principles and Seconds in Dueling by John Lyde Wilson. This sounds like an uh, historical, actual, uh, original text. Am I correct? You are, in fact, correct. It is a uh, slim pamphlet. It is, in uh, my words, uh, again to Emily. Poor Emily. She went book shopping with me, and she's a lovely person, deserves better than this. Um, but in my words to Emily, look, Emily, it's the first LARP rules. <laughs> <laughs> and we all agreed that I did kind of need to own it. So, in fact, I did. It was uh, a wonderful thing. Uh, and it's, you know, not that wonderful, but it's the straight up rules for dueling. So if your characters are getting into a duel, um, this will be the way that you can, that you can govern them. You can, you can look it up and it's, it's like, it's really short. You'll be able to know, um, so this could uh, be like a player handout that you would give out, uh, right. when yeah, a you, duel you could just give it to them and they, and they would know it. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the words that, that had escaped me. But it, uh, it, it's very, very short. It's probably free online, but I just liked having the physical copy of it. It got reprinted by, you know, I, I'm going to be mean here and guess the University of South Carolina Press, but, um, it might have been someone else. But it's, uh, but it's a sweet little, uh, uh pamphlet and, uh, just a handy little artifact to have around. Uh, speaking of escaping, next up is The Great Train Robbery by John Gosling and Dennis Craig. Is this the British Great Train Robbery? This is the British Great Train Robbery, but it's the Great Train Robbery from 1963, not the Great Train Robbery from the Victorian era that uh, uh, Michael Crichton wrote the novel about and they made all those movies about and whatnot. This is the, uh, I think there may have been a uh, Sean Connery movie about this Great Train Robbery, if I am not mistaken. I think Connery might be the Victorian one. Yeah. I'm picturing him think, looking Victorian. Looking Victorian. Well, he, he, he did look Victorian and he may have only been in that Victorian one, not in the other Victorian, not in, not in this one. Right. Uh, but I'm pretty sure there has been a movie about this one as well. Okay. The larger point being it is a, um, uh, 
a great uh, train robbery in the 1960s and therefore usable for your caper films and caper books about the 1960s. And if you're in a Fall of Delta Green game in which you plan a elaborate caper, uh, this will be one of those. Um, and can you just uh, quickly for our listeners outline the uh, the robbery itself a little? Okay. Um, in fact, Steve McQueen was in the movie, not uh, Sean Connery, so I am wrong. Um, the robbery basically was this uh, enormous um, sum of money. The Royal Mail uh, was was carrying it. It was about uh, 50 million pounds uh, in uh, modern money. It went over a uh, railroad bridge in Buckinghamshire. They messed with the signals. Um, they uh, stopped the train, climbed over, took all the money off, and ran off and hid. And the cops found the hideout, and at the hideout, they'd left enough evidence to arrest uh, virtually all of them. One of them, I think, uh, Ronnie Biggs, if I'm correct, uh, managed to stay out of sight for, uh, for, for a decades. And he finally came back to Britain in like 2001 because I guess he was bored with not being in jail. I'm not sure why he came back <laughs> to Britain. He was nostalgic for fish and chips, I think, was the answer there. Yes, he, he, you just can't get um, a, a Marmite anywhere else yeah, or something. not enough brown sauce. In not Tenerife. enough brown sauce in Rio de Janeiro or wherever he'd been hiding out. But anyway, the um, uh, uh, it, it's sort of a classic of, of 60s culture in that it sort of takes the the dramatic uh, Victorian notion of train robbery and, and spins it around into the modern era. There's a great deal of, of beating people over the head with iron bars and whatnot. It's not a yeah, so the a, train a, robbery might be great, but the people who robbed the train, not less so than great. great. They were bad people. And many of them went to prison as they should have. Speaking of villainy, next on the pile is master of villainy, a biography of Sax Romer by Kay Van Ash and Elizabeth Sax Romer. So, I assume from that second name that this is the uh, authorized biography. Very much so. It is the wife of Sex Romer, Elizabeth, and uh, Kay Van Ash, who I guess is his literary protege to an extent. Uh, Kay Van Ash crossed my radar when he wrote um, a novel called Baker Street 10 Years After, which was Sherlock Holmes versus Fu Manchu. And I read it because obviously, and it was actually pretty good. And I still have it around today. And so when I saw uh, a biography of Sex Romer, my eyes perked up, and then I saw that it was by Kay Van Ash, and it was, well, it's a first edition. I've got to pay grown-up boy prices for it, but it's worth it. So I did. And Sex Romer, of course, was also famously very, very interested in the occult. He used to claim, I think, to have been a member of the Golden Dawn, but I'm not sure there's any great proof of that. Uh, and this book will at least cover lots of the stuff that Sax Romer claimed because his wife is probably not going to be spending this book debunking her beloved husband of 40 years, I think. And it, uh, worst case scenario, it will contain much that is joyous about the twenties and thirties world of the occultist and author, which is all by itself straight up trail and, uh, uh stra trail of Cthulhu research material over and above the fact that, oh yeah, he's the guy that created Fu Manchu. Right, and moving from Trail of Cthulhu research material to Fall of Delta Green research material, we come to In the Pirate's Den, My Life as a Secret Agent for Castro by Jorge Massetti. What's his story? Uh, Jorge Massetti is the son and namesake of Commander Segundo, who was an Argentine journalist who got uh, roped by Che Guevara into leading a uh, attempted communist uh, coup d'etat in Argentina, and that plan worked about as well as all of Che's plans. Uh, Mazzetti Sr. dies in the jungle, and Mazzetti Jr. is radicalized by that action and joins uh, Cuban intelligence. 
He becomes a uh, urban guerrilla in Buenos Aires. Then he becomes a member of what they called uh, the America's Department, where he uh, acts as a secret agent, sort of a, a according to his own uh, r- report, a roving troubleshooter for uh, or troublemaker for the Castros. You know, running conflict diamonds in and out of Africa to uh, pay Cuba's bills, um, counterfeiting American money, narco trafficking, uh, serving in Angola, Nicaragua, and the other places that Cuban forces served. So he's sort of a Cuban James Bond out there getting it done for Castro, and then eventually uh, in 1989 comes back and finds that his uh, his sort of patron, a guy named General Ochoa, has been arrested for trying to start perestroika in Cuba. Castro wants none of that nonsense because he sees where that's going. And so Mazzetti manages to uh, extricate himself and go to America and publish the tell-all memoir that I have before me today in the Pirate's Den. So it's his career, obviously, in the 60s that's going to be sort of one of the crucial things. Uh, for Fall of Delta Green, because this is a good player-on-the-other-side type document that lets you know what your Delta Green agents will be going up against, even if the Castros are not in league with um, uh, Monstrous uh, Yig or some other hideous great old one. They are at least bad news for America, and the Delta Green guys are going to have to stop that as well. Speaking of uh, things adjacent to Delta Green, we have the Mighty Wurlitzer, How the CIA Played America by Hugh Wilford. Yeah, the Mighty Wurlitzer is the nickname given by Frank Wisner, the guy who sort of set up Operation Gladio and did a lot of uh, the sort of cultural uh, spy mastering in America. So when you read that the CIA uh, sponsored Jackson Pollock exhibits, that's part of what he's talking about. There was a number of groups that were sort of umbrella groups for American academics and American scholars and American literate literati to basically... Uh, be funded and run by the CIA. The CIA was not saying, you, Norman Mailer, will write this thing, but it was paying someone to hire Norman Mailer to write this thing, or putting Norman Mailer up as a example of boisterous American culture instead of uh, stupid social, social realist culture. And Wisner called the operation the sort of um, uh, combination of front groups and uh, arts groups, uh, his mighty Wurlitzer, meaning a uh, organ that he could play to achieve any note that he wanted to. And Ramparts magazine blew the gaff on that in 1967. And there was all manner of great controversy and whatnot. This is the book about up until Ramparts magazine spoiling it for everyone, what the CIA was up to in terms of uh, social uh, manipulation of, uh, in many cases, quite liberal or even left-wing artists and cultural creators. And the interesting question that I don't know if this book is going to get to is, to what extent does Jackson Pollock know that it's the CIA that is making him a globally known artist as opposed to uh, any other uh, thing that might be going on? Yes, because on the list of sinister things that the CIA has been accused of, arts, grants, and promotions, uh, maybe not at the top of that list. You know, you know I think it goes... Um, Conniving at the massacre of communists in Indonesia, overthrowing Mossadegh, sponsoring abstract expressionism. I think those are the three. Those are the top three. Um. Uh, still on the uh, tradecraft tip, uh, we have The Spy Who Loved the Secrets and Lives of Christine Granville by Claire Mully. Uh, Christine Granville, what country and era are we talking about? Uh, Christine Granville is a World War II era um, spy. She is... She is Polish by birth. Uh, her birth name was Maria Kristina Janina Skarbek. She married a, uh, well, she married a lot of people, but uh, uh, she was the daughter of a count 
Um, she was a uh, Jewish uh, ethnicity, but they were not um, practicing Jews. They were just sort of fully assimilated. She was related to Chopin, among her other fine uh, backgrounds. She was a champion skier. Uh, she had a number of uh, great a- adventures. And then, of course, in 1929, people who had vast piles of money, many of them lost them. Uh, she had to sort of go off and uh, work at a car dealership and sort of become a a uh, classic. Uh, you can imagine there being a screwball comedy starring uh, uh, Christina here. But she winds up marrying a couple of people, the second of whom gets her into London. And in London, she volunteers for service against um, the, the the Nazis. And uh, eventually, because she had so many acquaintances from her elevated social background, the old boy network works in her favor, and she gets put into uh, the SIS and the OS and the SOE, and then goes around um, uh, saving uh, people's lives and uh, having crazy adventures. Because, of course, as I mentioned, champion skier. So she's not the sort of person who who sits quietly by the radio. She goes zooming into places and and going after bad guys. She organized um, courier rings. She set up uh, uh, surveillance things. She uh, spied in Cairo on uh, the Nazis and uh, did counterintelligence there. Um, at one point, she got captured by the Gestapo and uh, by biting her tongue in half until blood came out of her mouth, convinced them that she had tuberculosis. And so they ran away instead of um, uh, risking getting tuberculosis themselves, which was, I think, quite the gamble because the Gestapo have another cure for tuberculosis that does not involve them running, running away. But however it worked, she she made it... Um, uh, she she made it out of Hungary alive, and she continued basically to have a a long and uh, thrilling career throughout World War II. After the war, she sort of had, you know, PTSD, one imagines, and all manner of other health problems from biting one's tongue in half, etc., and wound up sort of dying in relative obscurity, uh, although she was stabbed to death by a, a jilted lover or uh, weird weirdo stalker, depending on which version of it you read. So that sort of adds that last little note of crazy drama to her biography. So, but why isn't this the next Kate Beckinsale movie? Good grief. Why isn't this all the Kate Beckinsale movies? I have never understood any of this stuff. Um, and it's not like there's a shortage of awesome uh, female SOE agents. There was um, Vera Atkins, of course, who was the, the best rifle shot possibly in the SOE, uh, certainly up there in the, in the whole British army. And she is another great person who should be out running around on big screens all over America. But yeah, uh, it's an excellent question as to why Kate Beckinsale has not been Christine Granville a million times. Although she looks sort of, um, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal in the, in the pictures, but that's, you can, you can fix that in post. And, uh, now we come to, uh, setting the desert on fire. T.E. Lawrence and Britain's Secret War in Arabia, 1916 to 1918 by James Barr. We've already established that you, when you see a T.E. Lawrence book, you pick it up. Uh, so what does this add to uh, Lawrenceana? This, I believe, and I have not read it to be super sure, but this, I believe, is the first Lawrence book to come out after the declassification of the India office files. Uh, Britain ran their colonies through two offices, the India office and the colonial office and the colonial office files, I think are still classified, but the India office files got declassified. And I suspect not least because many of the files were left in India after 1948 and the Indian government probably felt less eager to keep Britain's secrets than other governments. 
But either way, it may have been that India basically sort of shamed Britain into doing it or Britain was going to do it because they thought, well, it's just the India office. What can anyone find out? But of course, the India office sent a lot of email, uh, emails. <laughs> they sent a lot of messages. They did send emails. That's the most surprising thing yeah. about the India office was that it had email, but no one else did. So it felt pretty bad. Well, that's what um, makes it anyway, a secret war. That was a secret war. That's the secretest of wars when no one can even know that they're at war with you because they don't have an email. People didn't even know what it meant when you accidentally CC'd them and when they should have BCC'd them. They didn't, right. Didn't no, it was a primitive time. It was a primitive. You had to type at uh, with two fingers. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. Uh, they, they sent uh, cables, let's say that, to uh, other agencies and got cables back. And many of those records, while they are still classified in MI6, made their way into the India office files and got declassified. So uh, since the India office was in charge of Mesopotamia after the war, uh, which is part of why Mesopotamia was so horribly badly governed, um, th- uh, there is a lot of India office information about... Gertrude Bell and T.E. Lawrence and their operations in that neck of the woods. And because T.E. Lawrence is famous and awesome, that's who gets all the books written about them. Uh, and I suspect this is what it is. is the, it's the India office view of T.E. Lawrence as one amongst many British um, agents of influence in the Persian Gulf, in Arabia, in that whole area. And Lawrence being sort of the uh, poster boy for guerrilla warfare Later on, there would not be Green Berets if T.E. Lawrence hadn't been T.E. Lawrence, because up until then, Britain never bothered to sponsor guerrilla operations, except when they could actually stand there and run them like they did in Spain. Uh, so this takes us to a uh, thematic break in the book pile in which uh, books, many of which are relevant to the fall of Delta Green uh, in one way, are about to shift into books that are relevant to fall of Delta Green in a different way. So let's mark that separation with an ad for Fall of Delta Green. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, You didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. Okay, and we're back for the second uh, more elliptonic half of Ken's book haul. And uh, without further ado, let's get to the first of them. It's In Quest of Lost Worlds, Journey to Algeria, Ethiopia, Yucatan, and Beyond by Count Byron Duprorock. Byron Duprorock, or Count Byron Duprorock, as we like to call him, uh, or certainly as he liked to call him, was Francis Byron Kuhn. He was a American from Philadelphia, um, and he liked to go find things and steal them. <laughs> and that's how he got to be a count. He was a... Tomb Raider, uh, he was a Tomb Raider to, uh, to, to sort of set the mold for Tomb Raiders. Um, he, uh, 
made things up. He claimed to be a member of the Royal Geographical Society, which was probably not true. Or if it was, once they found out what he was up to, they kicked him out. Um, he filmed. They checked if his, he was a member, and if so, kicked him out. Exactly. Um, uh, they they filmed his um, uh, his excavations, uh, and then lost the films, uh, probably because they revealed something too horrible for words. He searched for King Solomon's mines. He looked for the Garamantes in Central Africa. He found, probably by accident, but let's say on purpose, the weird petroglyphs in uh, the Hogar region of Algeria. Um, he uh, was in the excavation of Carthage. He was uh, part of that in the 1920s. He says he was put in charge of it. We will perhaps draw a veil over exactly who was in charge of what. Um he decided that Atlantis was in North Africa, and he went and he excavated pretend Atlantis uh, for a while. He's quite a guy, uh, a man of adventures, and all of these adventures have been combined by the good people of Adventures Unlimited Press into uh, one fine volume, uh, lavishly illustrated, as is their way. And this is basically uh, the Count de Prorock's uh, first-hand view of what he was up to. Uh, one would like, perhaps, to have combined this with a proper biography of the Count de Prorock, but I'm not sure there is one, sadly. Um, but it would have been a, 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 a it, it, he's a pretty great NPC to have show up because he is a congenital liar and a guy who knows people who want to dig up tombs with him. So right there, that's a fine combination as far as I'm concerned. Uh, yes, obviously an Indiana Jones antagonist. Uh, next, we move over to the Solomon Islands for Solomon Islands Mysteries, Accounts of Giants and UFOs in the Solomon Islands by Marius Borion. So uh, what does the Solomon Islands have more of, uh, UFOs or giants? I suspect that uh, the Solomon Islands has more giants than it does UFOs, but it does have UFOs and it has all manner of other crazy stuff going on. I, I I picked this book up because I liked the sort of incredibly restricted title, right? That it was just the Solomon Islands, not New Guinea, not Australia, not Tahiti and the rest of the Pacific, just the Solomon Islands, not New Britain. That's in the Bismarck Islands. This is just the Solomon Islands. Get it right. So I enjoy, I enjoy that. It's got a, a, a dragon, a, a, a sort of a, a sea serpent, water serpent type thing. It's got all manner of other um, strange activities. The downside of this book is that it's very much a, I went to the Solomon Islands and here's all I saw type book as opposed to a, I don't want to say more sober, but let's say more third person-y, uh, here's all the crazy stuff in the Solomon Islands, go thou and enjoy. Right. So uh, because, experience, not research. Yeah, it, it, that's that's the downside. There's going to be, you know, some some bits of, according to the natives, they say X, but it's not going to be as useful or as fun as just someone going through and coming up with all the uh, nonsense that you wanted to have. Um, but for example, one chapter is known UFO bases of the Solomon Islands, which I think means it's just an FO base, right? right? Yeah. I mean, if you know it's there, then it's not ooh anymore. But anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out about the known UFO bases. Um, uh, the UFOs are, um, uh, uh, they, they look like dragon snakes, so they might not even be UFOs. They might be flying monsters. Uh, I'm hopeful anyway. And, for example, according to the book, when they saw these UFOs, they asked a little old Chinese man who ran a curio shop what they were, and he said, oh, those are just dragon snakes. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's in my upcoming book, Unreassuring Reassurances of <laughs> right. History. Of history. Well, of the Solomon Islands. Don't, right, yes. I wouldn't get, want to get too broad in my right, sources. Right, just of the Solomon Islands. Matter. So, um, uh, 
he uh, died in a tidal wave. You'll be glad to know uh, after having given that unconvincing reassurance. Um, or, or, so, or so the story goes. Or so they would have you believe. Yes. So yeah, that book is 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 rich in delight, but not rich in um uh, in factoids, sadly. But I, I suspect I'll be able to mine some good stuff out of it, uh, it regardless of its uh, reluctance in giving it to me. Next, we uh, move to a, a somewhat wider uh, geographical remit uh, with the fabled coast legends and traditions from around the shores of Britain and Ireland by Sophia Kingshill and Jennifer Westwood. I imagine there's lots of legends and traditions associated with those shores. Uh, what's the uh, focus or angle here? There is no focus, which is what is so wonderful about it. It's a geographical gazetteer, and it starts with uh, the Channel Islands and the Southwest Cornwall and all sort of uh, places. And then it just runs uh, counterclockwise around Great Britain. And as it goes past a coast, it'll say, here's the stuff that uh, is off this coast, according to legend. And then it goes the same thing around Scotland and says, here's what's off Scotland, according to legend. And then it goes around Ireland and says, here's what's off Ireland, according to legend. So it's just a whole bunch of geographically delimited legends. And unlike the, the Solomon Islands or Byron de Prorock, it is an index, which is a venison that I grow increasingly fond of in my dotage because rather than uh, stumble upon references to magical Chinese curio sellers. I would like to go to the index under curio sellers, comma, Chinese, comma, magical, and just find them. And it would be much simpler if everyone could adopt that simple policy. Um, possibly, you know, with, if there's no curio sellers, don't just add them to your index. That only causes problems. But this is indexed by sighting type and by, um, uh, location. And it, it basically, it's a fully useful gazetteer of, stuff you think you see off the ocean and it includes like uh magical shipwrecks and monsters and ghosts and uh uh haints of all kinds and mysterious bells and just so much fun uh that you can't you can't bear not to own it as far as i'm concerned if you are any kind of anglophile and weirdophile so of this pile of books that i'm vicariously enjoying i think my favorite title is a confusion of prophets victorian and edwardian astrology by patrick curry of course, it's the uh, title, not the subtitle, that is uh, engaging. Uh, but what's the, what's the angle here? Uh, this is a straight, basically a straight-up history of astrology, the argument being this is how astrology comes back into vogue after having been di uh, disdained by all intelligent people during the Age of Reason, uh, so-called not least because they said uh, dismissive things about astrology. But eventually, uh, in the 19th century, astrology begins to come back. And you have a series of famous astrologers, celebrity astrologers in some case, who attract people like Disraeli and other leading lights of Edwardian and Victorian society. And as the people follow, so too does respectability until you wind up with astrology in newspaper columns and you get people like uh, Alan Leo, uh, who basically industrialize astrology in the same way that people are industrializing everything in this modern age. And that is, I believe, Patrick Curry's thesis is that astrology partakes of the modern just as much as things that we would rather think of as modern. And he's drawing uh, sort of a implicit line between the uh, astrology and every other technology of empire. And the wonderful thing about this, though, is it's going to have a bunch of people that I didn't know existed among them, the astral tramp. And I'm already excited to find out what the astral tramp got up to. All I know is that he's in the in the front part of the book uh, in the this book includes the astral tramp. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sold. I'm ready. So, uh, the Astral Tramp alone, I consider it worth 
uh, something, and perhaps it would have been even a better title if it had been The Astral Tramp and Other Astrologers. And uh, if people are wondering uh, what the sound they might be hearing in the background is, uh, it's not Virgil pounding on uh, Ken's door trying to get in. It's uh, some renovating in the distance, which, of course, we have no control over. Please bear with us. Uh, Next up, we come to The Sympathetic Medium, Feminine Channeling, the Occult, and Communication Technologies, 1859 to 1919. So the specificity there indicates to me that this is an academic book. Am I correct? You are correct, sir. And it's by Jill Galvin. It is by Jill Galvin, and it is from the good people at Cornell University Press. The book basically draws a connection between the gendering of channeling and mediumship as feminine that happens over the course of the 19th century and the female uh, telegraph operator, the female typewriter, all of the female communicators at a remove that begin to uh, show up then that the notion of the female voice as specifically the voice from the other side is the argument or, or at least the, um, uh, the connector that Jill Galvin is drawing through. And it is, uh, you know, when you combine feminism, technology, and the occult, you have me on all three sides, as far as I'm concerned. When I found out that this book existed before I bought it, um, I notified Rob McDougall, who is a historian of the telephone. He's an American historian in Canada. He's a Canadian. He teaches American history in Canada. And I said, if you do not have this book, Rob, the, the system has failed. And he writes back and says, no, don't worry. I have this book and two others like it. So this is a whole genre, apparently, of making uh, parallels between telegraphs and and ghosts, which means that I'm already two books behind uh, Rob McDougall. So good job, Rob. Right. Sneaking up there. Well, the connection between telegraphs and ghosts sounds like at least a whole segment of this podcast. So. It very well could be. <laughs> Next up. Uh, we come to the secret tradition in Arthurian legend by Gareth Knight. My question would be, of the many possible secret traditions in Ar- Arthurian legend, which one does this address? This is a straight-up Western initiatory magical tradition a la the Golden Dawn, where you have visions and experiences and, and coursework, and it takes you from one level of illumination up to the next level of illumination, the very standard progression that uh, you see in, in the Crowleyan Orders, you see it in the Golden Dawn, you see it in Freemasonry. It's this very much a standard Western initiatory order. And uh, Gareth Knight, who is a, a scholar of the occult, of an occult character himself, uh, is not necessarily to be disdained for that, but is to be watched carefully, I think. He goes through and says, well, what's a more Western tradition than King Arthur? None. Uh, being um, named Gareth Knight, I think, is what causes that kind of behavior. And so, therefore, since we know and Noah's in quotes here, that all knowledge is structured as a series of illuminations. Therefore, what is the Western tradition of Arthur? And lo and behold, when Gareth Knight goes and looks for it, he finds it right there, wow. Robin. He I, finds uh, it. I did, I did not anticipate that. You did not expect that. Um, and it draws, you'll be glad to know, from Atlantis. So that's helpful. Because there's nothing more English or Arthurian than Atlantis. There very little, actually. Uh, you wouldn't think that, but Gareth Knight is here to set you right. So the beginning of chapter 11, part two, the grade of Merlin and the fairy women, chapter 11 is the Atlantean background. Um, and I think it shows a certain, a certain puckishness to have left it for chapter 11, frankly. If it's the Atlantean background, you'd think it was more in the background. But I guess until you have achieved the grade of Arthur and then the grade of Merlin, you are not cleared for the Atlantean background. So many wonderful things. Plus, I believe that there are actual 
uh, initiatory workings to be done in here. Uh, you sit there and you think very, very hard about uh, the scabbard of the sword. Uh, Excalibur, of course, is uh, the Kabbalah. You'll be glad to know. Or the Tree of Life. Uh, well, I'm sure we could uh, go on making those connections all day, but we don't have all day. But we do. Well, have you can't. One you can't make those connections until you've mastered the Great of Guinevere, Robin. Don't be making those connections. Uh, there we go. Uh, well, I've not yet done that, so let's move on to Stukeley's Stonehenge, an unpublished manuscript, 1721 to 1724, by William Stukeley, edited by Aubrey Burl in Neil Mortimer. Well, I would say this is unpublished no more. Uh, uh, what are we looking at? Okay, William Stukeley was a great antiquarian, perhaps possibly the greatest antiquarian. He went around Britain and said, there's an awful lot of stuff here that people just say giants built. I'm going to list it, and I'm going to map it, and I'm going to age of reason the hell out of it. And Stukeley is the first scholar to, in detail, discuss Stonehenge, and he maps it out, um, Stonehenge as it was in 1721. And it, it apparently it took him four years worth of visits to Stonehenge to get everything measured out to his satisfaction. Uh, this is that manuscript that he wrote down for whatever reason he didn't get it published at the time. He was uh, a medical doctor, so this was more of a sidelight, I guess, than it was his whole job. Um, and then Aubrey Burl, who is one of the sort of experts in uh, Stonehengeology, sort of a pretty much a real scholar. I would say Aubrey Burl is like eighty percent a real scholar and twenty percent uh, Stonehenge crazy. <laughs> That's a pretty good ratio, I would say. Yeah, I, I think that's the right ratio, frankly. If you're 100% a scholar, then you're boring. Yeah, um, you don't want to be 0% Stonehenge crazy. No, I think if you, if you, then you're not qualified to talk about Stonehenge, I say. How Stonehenge crazy are you, percentage-wise? Me? I'm more than more than Aubrey Burl. Um, when I was at Stonehenge, I was super Stonehenge crazy, because that was terrific. To a boy from Oklahoma, where literally history begins in 1880, uh, to see Stonehenge was was a was a, a numinous experience for me. So at the time I was probably 80% Stonehenge crazy. I, I've brought it down right. to 30%. Well, everyone's Stonehenge craziness factor goes up exactly. as one becomes proximate to Stonehenge. To Stonehenge. That's, that's part the of the Stonehenge, of Stonehenge effect. Stonehenge. Right. Yes. It's a magical megalith that acts to activate one's wonder at magical megaliths. Uh, wow. We've solved Stonehenge. I feel like Stukely has taught us something it's from across the centuries. Stonehenge is self-referential. Right. It's meta. Yeah, it was a it was a metalith. The, the the druids are there saying, "Do you think that that's a little too a little too meta? Do you think people are going to get it?" Oh no, totally, they're going to get it. Said the druids. Yeah, when postmodernism comes along in a few uh, thousand this years, is gonna be everyone's going to get this. You lift that stone. Yes, come on, build, build. People aren't going to get the hilarious referentialness of it until you lift it. Anyhow, um, uh, William Stukeley uh, was the first observer of Stonehenge. This is sort of his. Uh, theory of, of how it got built and all the other stuff. And Aubrey Burl and Neil Mortimer between them have edited and footnoted it so that people nowadays can read it uh, with some degree of sympathy and understanding. And I was just delighted to have this, uh, you know, straight up document of what Stonehenge is like in 1721, because unlike many of uh, things that are done in 1721, as we pointed out, it was unpublished, which means it was not on the Internet. Uh, well, and that brings us to the end of our book pile, but something that is on the internet is this podcast. And as its last uh, few seconds unfurl, uh, we'll be back on the internet next week with yet another podcast. And in the meantime, uh, check out and donate to our Patreon and help keep the show alive.
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Urs Blumentritt. Wayne Peterson. Chris McLaren. Rich Spainauer. And Adam Alexander. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth and he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.